Dr. Michael Fullen is legendary to many. As you will hear, Dr. Rose is a huge fan. Michael's new book, Spirit Work, is the perfect text to dive into during a time like this. He elevates our understanding and expectation about what collaboration really is and what it looks like in action. As you will hear, Jeff learns new things from this conversation and his book, and we are confident you will too. If you love this conversation as much as we did, please let us know by rating our podcast. Enjoy. Good day, educators, teachers, leaders, ladies and gentlemen. I come to you today um, a bit giddy, a bit, a bit, uh, just more than excited. This topic that we're going to jump into is so critical in this day and age. But what's very special about today, of course, like every time we produce a leader chat, has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with um, our, our guests because they continue to provide incredible, focused, pragmatic content aligned to the leadership challenges and needs of today. And um, like I said, today, um, today we'll kind of go down in the books based upon who we're inviting and, and who we're going to be talking to here any minute. So I'm going to skip a lot of the um, typical um, updates or information that I provide because I want to make sure we use this 35 minutes extremely well. So once again, our Leadership Circle members here are hearing this or seeing this in a couple of ways. They're either watching it live or watching the link later. Um, or they're listening to the podcast that we produce um, in, a, in a delayed manner a couple of weeks after this is aired live. So today, this is, this is the focus. We are going to be talking about spirit work, it's called, and you'll learn more about that, spirit work and the science of collaboration. And in a minute, we're going to be welcoming Michael Fullen um, to, to the stage. Now, if you don't know Michael Fullen and you're an educational leader, then, um, then I need to talk to you because you're not reading the right things. You're not listening to the right people. Um, mostly, most likely, you know of Michael Fullan's work, but let me read you some information about him anyway. Michael Fullan is the former dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education and Professor Emeritus of the University of Toronto. He is co-leader of the New Pedagogies for Deep Learning uh, Deep Learning Global Initiative, recognized as a worldwide authority on educational reform. He advises policymakers and local leaders in helping to achieve the moral purpose of all children learning. Michael Fullen received the Order of Canada in December 2012. He holds honorary doctorates from several universities around the world. Fullen is a prolific, award-winning author whose books have been published in many languages. His book, Leading in a Culture of Change received the 2002 Book of the Year Award by Learning Forward. Breakthrough won the 2006 Book of the Year Award from American Association for Colleges for education, Teacher Education. And Turnaround Leadership in Higher Education won the Bellwether Book Award in 2009. Change Wars with Andy Hargraves, who's also been one of our guests, was named the 2009 Book of the Year Learning for, by Learning Forward, and Professional Capital with Andy Hargraves also won the AACTE 2013 Book of the Year. 
Michael Fullan's latest books are Nuance, Why Some Leaders Succeed and Others Fail, Surreal Change, The Real Life of Transforming Public Education, which is an autobiography, by the way, Deep Learning, Engage the World Change, The World Coherence, Putting the Right Drivers in Action, The Principle, Three Keys for Maximizing Impact. But today, I'm talking with him very specifically about spirit work and the science of collaboration, which is right up our alley relative to our model here in the leadership circle at Cognia. So without further ado, let me welcome Michael Fullen to the screen. Michael. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, oh, thanks. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. I have to ask this. I, um, I could go on and on about your background and your bio. I, I must have missed something. What did I miss? And maybe just update us. How, how, how have you been doing? Uh, I've been doing fine. I mean, the only thing you missed was my early years when I was a hockey player up till about age 20, and it interfered with my academic work. So eventually I got the balance right, and uh, and uh, I'm doing fine now. Uh, we I used to travel 80% of the time. Since COVID, that's gone to almost nothing. But I've got a new world of uh, interaction now. So uh, So there's more work actually now, more ideas, and of course more need for change, given what we're facing. Or do you do you assume that some of the strategies that you know you picked up during the time of COVID, you'll continue, or do you see yourself hitting the road again soon? Uh, I think those strategies will continue uh, because we're work. The people are back now um, in many cases and doing this work. So we do have uh, strong partnerships. So, for example, in California, we have a major partnership uh, across the whole state and funded by a, a foundation. So we will be in California quite a lot. And all, our other countries on the deep learning lab uh, are also multiple countries. So I think it'll be, instead of running around uh, three times a week, it'll be you know three times a month, but it'll be big and focused. Got it, got it. So let me, uh, y- you wouldn't remember this, but um, I- I've read a number of your books. I've heard you speak a number of times. Um, actually maybe six, seven years ago, um, we were, I was at a conference in Oregon, and that's where I used to, to be a leader. You spoke afterwards, there was a reception, and somehow, some way, I made my way up to you at the end of the reception, and I had the chance to spend time with you one-on-one over a beer or two, and um, it was a moment for me. Um, just know that kind of went down in the books as an opportunity for me to, you know, talk with somebody who I consider a, a bit of a rock star in education, uh, especially in the top of educational leadership. So just know that I and many others really appreciate you. And I guess I wanted to know what, what motivated you to write this, this most recent uh, book, because it, it, is, it is very focused on what's happening now or what has just happened and is just hot off the press, right? The Spirit Work book written with Mark Edwards, who I'm also a friend of. haven't seen him in a couple of years. But what was the initial motivation behind it? Well, we have been working um, all along on uh, system change in partnerships with school systems, as you've implied. And so I put it this way, uh, 80% of our best ideas come from leading practitioners. So we're learning from students, teachers, people like yourself. So that's always been our modus operandi. And then when uh, the, the shift to uh, 
COVID was preceded by uh, one of our books, our conclusion, uh, December 2019, let's say, which said that re- the regular system isn't working for the majority of students. It's out of, out of whack. And we are finding that there are alternatives, and we started to build the deep learning. And then uh, uh, COVID came along after that. So there was already a big problem. And then COVID came. And on the one hand, it exacerbated the problem, obviously, with, uh, with that. But it also turned everything upside down. And people began to say, well, there's an opportunity within this uh, problem to find some new ways. And that's what we want to do. That's what we want to spend our time. So in this book, uh, Mark Edwards, who uh, I've worked with before, when he was uh, Mooresville, we did a case study on, on him moving from digital technology to cultural change with great success. And I teamed up with him. We wrote a book. So he came along, I guess, about a year to me ago and said, uh, we're seeing some schools that are kind of rebounding here and they're in the midst of things and we have some new things. What do you think about this idea? So, uh, of course, he's a leading practitioner. I'm an opportunist, and we just uh, linked up, and we uh, we went and uh, found these uh, eight cities that are, or districts, knew they were good, pulled it out. You see the book. It just came out uh, seven days ago. So um, I did just get it, but uh, I've read through it and, and marked the heck out of it. Um, in, in fact, I was going to ask you right off, in, in the first couple of chapters, um, you really make some some really bold declarations, and I'll describe why I think that they're fairly bold, but one of them is this disconnect between students' experience um, in school and the complex world that they'll enter and navigate, right, which, you know, the concept here is we're educating kids for their future, not our past, right? Mm-hmm. Um, almost this mismatch of what students need and how schools are organized, so you're very clear on that. And the other is you talk about these four faces of global implosion, Right on climate collapse, gross in inequality, reeling social distrust, uh, distrust, and de- deteriorating mental health. So those those are really really clear and significant topics. Um, how did, how did you decide to really focus on on those things? And maybe you can make some comment on um, out of the gates rather than talk about just examples, you were very clear that this is not good enough for the future for our kids, which I appreciate. I was just uh, curious about how you focused on those four. Well, we already knew that kids were bored prior to COVID. I mean, the majority, I'm saying, I think probably 70%. And so uh, they were, uh, they just weren't engaged in school. And some of them were, uh, were bright, you know, traditionally did well, but no longer because it just, schooling wasn't grabbing them. So this uh, COVID came along and kind of uh, brought that out into the open. The timing uh, was going to be there anyways. That is climate change was getting worse and worse. We knew that, everybody knows that. Social equality, I did a report of, about 10 months ago on the drivers for change. And after the, the last 40 years, you see social inequality increasing, mistrust increasing. So those, those trends were really there. Were really there. And then, furthermore, when you put them together, those four that you mentioned, they're just they're they're cat- catastrophic. Even in good times, oh, not good times, but even in times that don't have the immediacy of the climate. So uh, we knew they were there. They were a time bomb, and all it took was COVID to interact with them for that time bomb to be palpable. People could see it, they could feel it, especially young people. Uh, so it was there. 
but it was a negative force. Our question was, well, what can we do about it? And what, who, are, who is doing something about it? And that's where the eight districts come into play. The, the piece around change, um, it's, it's interesting. I, I would agree that we're at this, it's a, the, the opportunity for change is really ripe right now because of mm -hmm. what we've experienced, because so many challenges have come to light. In the meantime, there, as you know, is this temptation to go back, to create, to go back to, to normal, and almost some public pressure that I think districts are facing. Um, and some teachers, as you know, are A, exhausted, um, and sometimes can naturally become offended, assuming that we're going to, we're talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of change and, you know, moving to a new normal. Um, what, what is your perspective on how we promote change in such a turbulent time? Well, the baby wasn't very healthy before COVID, right? And everybody knew it, and especially students. There were large percentages of students that were not being served. There was deterioration of, you just take social trust. Uh, Robert Putman, in his book on Upswing, uh, showed the surveys, the trends over uh, in the 1960s, social trust was at around 65% of the people said, yeah, I trust other people in society. Now it's about 30%. So those things were, uh, you could say they were a time bomb, but, it, but if you were close to schools, you knew they were happening. And then, um, and then I, the, I, there is a tendency to want to go back to the normal, but that's more of a uh, pipe dream. Uh, the normal, when people think about it, wasn't that good. Maybe if you were privileged, you got something out of it. But those hordes of people, the two-thirds, I would say, or large chunks of them, were not happy. We're not going to do well in life. We're not doing well in life. So they were hurting very much anyways. And that's why it was easy. It wasn't like we were saying, please do this. Nobody's noticed it. We said, all right, it's coming to the surface because it was bound to come to the surface under these circumstances. And now uh, people play it safe. Yeah, let's go back to the new normal. But when we interview students, as we have, and say, uh, what have you learned? What have you learned during the uh, during COVID? Many of them say they've they've had an increase in empathy, they've had an increase in sensitivity about social purpose. Uh, uh, they don't say we want to go back to what was normal because it wasn't really normally good. And so they uh, there there's a, uh, there's kind of a, a an appetite here in these eight districts. We didn't cause the districts to do what they did; they were already doing it. We captured it. And what they were doing is they realized this is the time to act under really incredibly difficult circumstances. But if we don't act now, well, the, the consequences that range from human extinction to uh, troubled, uh, trouble uh, deterioration for the next 20 years or whatever. So I think there's a, a realization uh, that something has to happen. And I think people, people who want to go back to the so-called normal they need to experience and see what some of the good things actually are and why they're so uplifting and why it's better for the individuals and better for society. They need to see that. And that's why we wrote the book, so people could see it from the districts. We've got eight districts across the country, very different in some ways, but uh, we brought their voice out and we captured it and we re represented it in the book itself. So... Um I want to explore the, the title just for a second, Spirit Work. Um, that stood out to me. Um, you it's defined in the book as this. We define spirit work as the actions and accomplishments 
that leaders and members of school districts undertake to de develop their members um, cope and develop under the complex and adverse conditions of contemporary society. And so what is, what's, what's behind maybe the exploring and researching and communicating that theme? Because in some ways you're taking this concept and the science of collaboration, I feel like a bit deeper where you're creating almost a, a new expectation and then finding examples, of course, in the eight districts. But can you make some comment on the concept of spirit work? Yeah, it's one of those hidden gems, no longer hidden, I hope, because of our book, partly. Uh, but it, uh, uh, for, I wrote two or three books, and for the last 20 years, we often talked about moral purpose. And moral purpose was raise the bar, close the gap for all students. It was usually thought about in terms of literacy, numeracy, high school graduation, doing well academically. Uh, but now you get into the, uh, the, the, the world was going this negative direction anyways, as I said. And now you get COVID going and you get people who are, uh, who are really seriously suffering in life. And, uh, and it's no longer, well, we need an opportunity. How do we survive in that? And what we found in these uh, districts, because uh, we, we discover this, is that they had an extra ingredient that uh, originally we could call it love, love for the students. It always seemed a bit sappy to say love uh, in the case of you know schooling. Uh, and so, but now all of a sudden it wasn't sappy. It was, I really do love these kids and they're in trouble and we've got to do something. And so we, uh, we took, we also in our, our work about solutions, we see uh, education changing in its role in society. We see it as an instrument of, uh, of saving humanity. So it's really kind of, now we're talking about not just the save from the climate, but the, how, how we live, how we thrive, how we work with each other. And so humanity and civilization and the threat and the fact that uh, under all these really wicked adverse circumstances, there are districts and superintendents who say, it's really love of the care and everything about that that we are concerned about, and it's getting worse, and we have to act right away. We put the label spirit on it because we were seeing, uh, 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 it's a better word than love, I guess. I don't know. We can debate that. But uh, it, it also was, uh, was something that, and I read a lot in human evolution, that was making sense. Indigenous people uh, have for years known that spirit development is part of humanity and is part of that development. And you know we had uh, Meg Wheatley do a foreword. Uh, we didn't ask her to read the book before she agreed to, I mean, to do the foreword. She just readily said yes. And then as soon as she saw the manuscript, which she's been working on on spirit for, you know, 50 years, uh, she, it jumped out at her immediately. So we, we knew we were on the right track, but we didn't test it with her. We just said, probably she'll like it. Let's test it. And then she ran with it. I hope you read the, uh, you no doubt did, read the foreword. And the way she formulates it is that spirit work is about human, it's a human condition. It's about what humanity is. And it's about, uh, about this planet in a universe that has another billion planets. And it puts us in the perspective, I think it's very much has to do with the potential we have to uh, really solve problems in a way that people are creative. We have our, our ways of formulating that. So I think this is a beginning of a new, uh, I guess I'll say, revolution of the depth of learning. And one more thing I wanted to say, uh, Maslow, who wrote The Hierarchy, uh, 
And he was focusing on the individual. He had self-actualization as the top one uh, before he died, but he didn't have time to develop it. He said, there's another level above self-actualization, but he didn't really get to it. I think this is the other level. It's transcendental, but it's as human as human can be. Well, in, in that introduction, and I can't describe it as, as thoroughly as, as you can clearly, but what stood out to me is that this need of ours um, naturally just to connect with other people. And in the meantime, yeah. we've been saying for a long time that the cornerstone of education is actually relationships, right? We know that kids need to feel loved and cared for by adults. In the mean, do you think that this concept of love and spirit work, as, as needed as it is, do you imagine it's going to create a rub between some of the you know, current structures and standards and accountability structures that we have for schools, which I think that you and I would probably agree um, uh, are, are often inappropriate or at least misaligned a bit. So do you envision that to be maybe a, an interesting, uh, you know, conversation or controversy in the future? I think it is the, uh, the kick in the pants, to use a technical phrase, yeah. Uh, that is uh, that the system needed. And I think that uh, that the relationships, which, as you said, have always been with us, to me, they've been, when I think about and read all about them and we've looked at them, uh, relationships can be quite um, superficial, if you think, or they can be instrumental. But, but if you really go to the human science, and we have a cognitive science on uh, neuroscientists on our team, Gene Clinton, she uh, says connection is fundamental to the human being's evolution as in terms of the capacity to do things, to be creative, to accomplish things, to work with other people. So all of a sudden, relationships is not instrumental. It's not something you say, yeah, relationships, relationships, relationships. It's got a new, uh, when you tie it to spirit, spirit and collaboration, I mean, collaboration is relationships. They, they, that's one concept for us. It's not two different things. Let's go this way, go up that way. Now to your question, uh, it certainly is the case that schools and people have written about uh, the uh, the grammar of schools uh, as being 150 years old, and that hasn't changed much. So a lot of things are changing. The changes that we focus on are widening the goals and deepening the goals from mere academic accomplishment, and includes that, to accomplishment as being able to uh, our global competencies, being able to be an effective citizen. Uh, another way of putting it, you can do well in school and graduate and go to a good university, but are you good at life for yourself, let alone for others? So all of this is now being questioned by this uh, breakthrough. And then you'd start to then say, well, if that's what we want, the way we teach kids now is not working for a whole bunch of kids that are not uh, that are different. So it's not even working for that. But even those that do well, we sometimes they're called the wounded winners. They put all this effort in and they get very far, but they, they don't necessarily not fit for life. So we are questioning the purpose of schooling. We are questioning the way that pedagogy goes. We are questioning how uh, the culture of learning um, uh, needs to be uh, strengthened. And we are questioning the assessment of outcomes. So standardized tests is a narrow um, version of the outcome. The newer outcomes, they're some call, sometimes called new metrics, uh, but they actually profile students in terms of what they know and are able to do in a complex society, including creativity, citizenship, uh, character, 
uh, as well as uh, critical thinking and communication and creativity. So it's a shift, a fundamental redefinition of what learning should be. It ties together learning, well-being, and equality. You can't get uh, any one of those unless you're working on all three of those. So this is redefining. What it does uh, uh, is that it does shake up some people who say, well, this is changing fundamentally differently than I ever wanted. But other people, I think, are saying immediately, this is about time we took this seriously. And then other people beyond that are converts. They don't know what the change was, but when they see it, they know what they like. And they like this kind of upswing that you see in the uh, eight cases uh, where, where students and teachers uh, who previously uh, uh, were, uh, were, were suffering, I guess I will say, and now are even under circumstance of COVID are beginning to feel a sense of purpose that makes them feel good, that makes them feel they're doing absolutely essential work. You know, um, I, th I actually think that the message is going to resonate with, uh, it, it's almost as though it's described as something that um, we've known for a long time, but we have been unable to create an expectation for. And I think that the, the concept of spirit work uh, almost raises the, the plane, almost cr creates a new expectation on how we treat and engage with one another. And therefore, you know, I hate to use the word again, but love our kids. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do think it's going to resonate, especially with the educator, because it really defines the why of the typical educator anyway, right? The, the typical educator did not decide to teach children because of a love of content necessarily. Mm -hmm. They did it because they wanted to impact lives, right? They wanted to change the trajectory of lives for other people. Yeah. And so I, I, I just think that that first part of the book really uh, defines that and identifies our need as people to connect. And so I really appreciated it for sure. I, yeah, and I think uh, you're implying this, that it was latent before. It was there, but people didn't have the language or they felt awkward saying it. And then the way we were able to, through the practitioners, make it real, just as you said, they it, it, it was kind of there, but not activated enough. And then when they saw the connection, it was, holy cow, this is like, this is what I, why, why I'm supposed to be here, why I want to be here. And even though it's more difficult now, it's going to be more rewarding if we can get somewhere. So you get this uh, uplift is what you uh, what you're just describing, which uh, we're happy to tap into and stimulate. Agreed. Years ago, um, my dissertation was on collaborative systems of educators. I mean, the impact that they actually ha have on students. So the, the, the chapter of the science of collaboration spoke to me. Um, mm -hmm. I used to really complain a lot and be very concerned with what I thought was the abuse of the collaboration word. We used to call everything collaboration, whether that be yeah. idle chit chat or cooperation. And I used to say collaboration is deeper than that. It's actually a level of discourse that impacts not just practice, but belief systems. It, it goes deeper because you're now relying on others to create a new sense of knowledge as opposed to just relying on your own and communicating it to somebody else. So can you talk about what you think maybe are some of the misconceptions 
around collaboration that we've had in the past and maybe how your book addresses some of those because the examples definitely do. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in, in this uh, work for a long time, as you know, and uh, back in the 60s, we first started to talk about collaboration and, uh, and the need for that kind of work. And I was certainly part of helping to want to build that. And uh, it so turns out uh, that uh, collaboration is a word that e is easily amenable to superficiality. You can collaborate to do nothing. You can collaborate to do the wrong thing. You can collaborate to waste time. And, uh, and, uh, and there is, uh, so there's a way in which uh, uh, mere collaboration doesn't have enough definition to it. And then if you define it carefully, like, for example, PLCs tried to do, it just feels it's imposed that, oh, well, so the administrator's doing PLC on us. So it wasn't natural. And uh, you, you, you know that in your heart of hearts that it wasn't natural. Uh, so it, we actually have shifted to the word uh, connected autonomy is our new word. I just We just wrote a paper on it. And connected autonomy respects the individual and the group at the same time and has more definition to it. But to get to your question directly, we're able to define the science of collaboration better in this book because it had to be fundamentally intertwined with, uh, with uh, spirit work. If you put it with spirit work, it can't go wrong. It's forced to go better and right. And so once you, that's why we think of the two concepts as uh, fused. And when, when uh, Meg Wheatley actually says this in the foreword, she said, well, spirit work and, and collaboration are not two different things. They're really the same entity. Uh, her, that's her gut feeling, her, her, her core work. And that's what we mean by it. So uh, we, it, it is there because it's a means to uh, go deeper, but it's also very much in the, in the direct uh, alignment that collaboration brings out the best of spirit work and spirit work requires the best of collaboration. And that's how we see it running through the districts. Two things end up being a unity of purpose. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I, it, it, it's funny. I, I, have, I, I was an advocate for structures specific to, you know, allow and support uh, collaboration. But in the meantime, as soon as you put acronyms on things, um, yeah. I get concerned. Um, yeah. And I, I have seen that, that challenge of collaboration become an initiative. And it's not an initiative. It's a way of yeah. being. Um, which gets us to, I think, these eight examples. These, I was uh, so pleased to see that at least six of the eight examples, I, I know that leader from back in the day when I was in the seat, and um, yeah. it made me smile because you chose some really, really impressive places and leaders. But can you maybe comment on what do you think are the, maybe the two to three really important themes that you saw consistent amongst these leaders as as we're talking to other educational leaders right now, that's what this content is really designed for. What, what do you think you would want to draw out? Because they're all very different. Those leaders are different. I know them personally. They're different. But what would you see as the consistencies that you think other leaders need to pay attention to? Well, this is a complex question, as it turns out, because it's a moving target. And that, uh, and that we do have a degree of consistency where, um, for example, uh, hardly any, none of the eight, I guess, would have naturally talked about spirit work before they engaged with us. And now they said, oh, we, ha we have a word for it that I didn't 
you know, concept. It's actually fundamentally right, but I never used that language, they said. So we we identified what was there, gave a, you know, a, a label to it, brought it, made it live from that. And I think they become, um, that's really where that has, uh, that has come to life. The collaboration and the spirit work keep each concept uh, honest because they put pressure on each other. You can't have collaboration without spirit work or vice versa. So they have to be intertwined. And I think we do properly see variations on the theme because uh, a district that's stuck with, uh, as uh, Jefferson County was, needs a different kind of approach. Another district that's uh, that's small and uh, has been good on academic success, but hasn't really gone deep enough, that has its own uh, uh, issue. So each of these variations on the theme are there, and they we want them to apply on a band of things. We don't want them to apply on the old superficial collaboration. So we say collaboration itself was uh, was used too frequently. It was uh, it meant too many different things to too many different people. It was uh, it was really not the concept it should have been, uh, and, and it got hijacked into instrument instrumentality. So I think we have now put that out. But the reason I don't want to jump to a big conclusion is that this is a moving target. This is more complex. We know these two concepts will be essential, but they will have to play themselves out differently in the next 24 months, even in these districts, because the change is so, the context is so powerfully wrong when it comes to climate, when it comes to inequality, when it comes to well-being. It's so wrong that it's a time bomb. And so that these districts are doing is uh, kind of lessening the immediacy of the time bomb, but they're not getting rid of the problem. So uh, we we hope also that this will need to spread. Uh, uh, that's the point. These are only eight districts out of 15,000 in the U.S. or whatever the number is. So I think uh, I think we're just at the beginning. We've opened the door. We've got the right concepts to step through that. People are seeing what it, what it can be. But when we try to do this, even with these districts in the next three years, let alone the many others that will uh, want to do this, I hope, uh, it'll it'll be it'll be new because uh, not only will the circumstances change, uh, not only will it be new for them to try, uh, the conditions will change. And in nuance, I want to mention this: that uh, I have a definition of leadership, which is uh, I don't use this much jargon, but this has jargon because it says nuanced leadership are leaders become experts in contextual literacy. So if you take the word context, the two words contextual literacy. It means literacy about the context. And when the context changes, leaders become automatically de-skilled about the context because it's changed and they're not yet skilled at it. So they have to be apprentices as well as experts, that combination. So this is dynamism. And this means that you always have to be learning. Uh, every leader we can predict in the, under the conditions we are in the next decade, let's say every day of the next decade, has to be attuned to the shifting context in which they have to be experts in helping to contend with it and shape it for the better. This is cultural dynamics in real terms. It's a moving target. It requires that degree of adaptation and agility, and it requires the kinds of people we identified, I think, in this book. Oh, Michael, so the dilemma is you just opened up a new... Um... Uh, a, a new can I, I want to dive into, but I don't have three hours with you. Because I want to say, here's the problem. I, I am really, uh, I'm worried 
that many of our leaders may, um, may miss some of the contextual clues, um, may not have the capacity to focus on those because of um, because how political their jobs have become, and therefore will rely on some old strategies that actually I don't think are going to work in the future. And I actually don't think we know the strategies yet. I think that the leaders are going to have to rely on one another and pay attention to the context in order to navigate this really unfolding nuance as you've described so well. So it actually, it actually is the dilemma, the thing that I'm most worried about and most excited about if leaders can come together. But um, I do think that it, it's quite a challenge moving forward. Um, well, that's why we should have Cognia then, uh, because <laughs> this is this is a uh, um, here's here's another way of expressing that dilemma. Those leaders who are certain of what they're doing are less effective than those leaders who have doubtful questions about how to do it. That yes. that is, it, I mean, the research is actually fairly clear on that. So, and this is what this really means that you have to have be a special leader because, in a sense, you're saying to your school board, "I have ideas. I have the right ideas. We want to do this and that, and so we think it's on the right track." But I can't. I'm not certain. We better learn as we go. And that's not a very good job interview sometimes uh, that when you think about it that way. But I think that is the uh, that is the case that the that the and we did a book. Uh, uh, Davis Campbell and I did a book uh, on core governance. It's called uh, two years ago on the relationship between trustees and superintendents. And it's not a very good relationship, broadly speaking, when you take all, all of them. And some of them do have great relationships. So uh, this has to be done under the politics. And when the politics get uh, more um, negative and just take the vaxxers and all that, all that and the interaction with inequality, uh, there comes some pretty mean meanness comes out of people pretty readily, pretty daily. And you have to be able to live in that kind of and then make headway. When you make the breakthrough, I think the spirit work and the, uh, and the good collaboration are very strong uh, powers that will take you through that and improve the situation. But you have to live through the transition as a leader who's being a, maybe attacked and described. And uh, we have a, a line at the end of that book in the last chapter that said, we didn't ask how many of, of the leaders, how many times they've been threatened in their, on their job uh, about because of what they were doing. Uh, we didn't ask that question, but we know it's fairly high. So there's a lot of negativism. And I, I think the contextual literacy concept will actually make a difference because these leaders, because they learn about context, because their shape and are better in the in the way they relate to it, they're seen as successful and appreciated, but they have to go through the action in order to be appreciated. They're not appreciated carte blanche. They're appreciated as a result of the good spirit work and, uh, and the good science of collaboration. That's when they get appreciated, once they've uh, done some of it. You know, Michael, most of our strategies to support leaders um, are roundtable processes. This is actually what we're doing now is the only thing that we do content-wise that is delivering to them. But everything else we do is through bringing people around the table and going through protocols so that they're helping one another on some of the day-to-day. -day. And I would mm -hmm. actually say, um, you know, some of these, you know, 
kind of nuanced literacy concepts that you just described. But if you and I were around the table with experienced, some new leaders, um, et cetera, what would be your brass tacks, pragmatic advice for them, almost departing words of make sure you think of or consider? How would you want to leave them um, in terms of advice? Well, I think the advice is, uh, is to uh, connect with other leaders who uh, are farther down the track on this, so mentors. Um, you mentioned you uh, knew several of these leaders uh, just by, by not, it's not, not, not accidental. They stood out in some ways. And we also knew, although we didn't put it in the book, we knew uh, mentors, uh, each of these leaders had six of the eight at least had. So they, they, they were really supported by mentors who had this kind of same connotation. So I think my advice is you can have the good ideas and it's in our book. That's great. You should have those. But when you're doing the real thing, you better have a connection with peers, including a mentor, but other peers. You better build teams in a way because uh, when you build these good teams, you get two kinds of power, professional power, you do good ideas that work, and political power, people that come together as a community that say, we, we want to do this and we'll protect each other. So I think it really, the advice is to get in for a rocky ride because that's, that's what it's going to be. But you have some help here, and we can give you some initial concepts, but you better start interacting on an ongoing way with others that are like that so you can uh, get through the bumps, so you get through and, and these ideas that are developed. And I think I do think that although these leaders have had uh, bumpy roads, they are respected by their communities, by and large. They're respected by the students because that's the nature of spirit work. You end up getting respected because you respect other people. You get respect back in turn. And that in the collaboration means the substance of what you're doing. So I don't think there's any good uh, shortcut of advice. Uh, but I think there is a way of working, a way of leading that, uh, that does put you in better stead and uh, does, uh, does make it. Although I am worried that people get run down under the current circumstances, there are a lot of early retirements. You would know it better than I would. And they re really, because people have good people who said, I can't really stand this anymore. It's just too overwhelming. And, and they, they really kind of, their own ill being is kind of suffering because of the overwhelming importance and the inability to make headway. So this is precarious times. I can't make it feel any less precarious other than what I've just said the last uh, five minutes. But it does make your your the book and the concept of spirit work as well as contextual literacy, um, it does make it really needed at this time. So I, I thank you and Mark Edwards for putting this out there. And I want to let you know, I've already reached out to two of the eight Good. to I say, we need to talk. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and I've already heard back from them. So yeah. um, and just, just know that our job is to take some really, really good work and highlight it for other leaders as well. And just know that we're following your lead. And um, I have just appreciated you for a long, long time. And I will continue to do so. And I know I'm not the only one. And so I just hope that you know the difference that you're making in the lives of leaders. And I, I really appreciate you, Michael. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk with you. And I look forward to more interaction. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Okay. Take care. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, um, so 
Uh, I told you. See, there is there there is a there is a reason that we recruit um, wise leaders, very strategic thinkers, to help um, members and leaders throughout the country and beyond. Um, and Michael Fullen is the perfect example of that. So I know that you have enjoyed and appreciated this time as much as I have. Everyone, be well.